Welcome to episode 89 of the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about the latest new Star Trek. Today, our topic is season three, episode 10, the season finale of Star Trek Lower Decks, The Stars at Night. I'm the Academy media professor, Michael Merrick. And I'm the Academy philosophy professor, Rodney Cup. And you can follow us on Twitter at Trek underscore Academy or listen on the web or subscribe your app to the podcast at anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. And Rodney, a reminder for our listeners that, as we've said a couple of previous podcasts, we're going to look at Star Trek Prodigy in batches starting in two weeks. So we'll look at the first three episodes of what Paramount, for some reason that's completely beyond me, insists is a continuation of the first season of Prodigy rather than a second season of 10 episodes. But that's neither here nor there. We've decided mm. to do this kind of batch look at Prodigy episodes, sort of like Will Wheaton's Ready Room does. In other words, not every individual episode, but in groups. And the first of those will be in two weeks. But for the present business of our podcast, Lower Decks, we will start with a brief summary of this week's episode to refresh our memory. And with this summary, here is Dr. Rodney Cup. All right. Well, in this episode, Mariner is enjoying her time with Petra Aberdeen, returning ancient relics to museums. But when she asks Petra, who is funding their operations, Petra won't say, which makes Mariner suspicious. Now, when Mariner discovers that their mysterious benefactor is Jean-Luc Picard, she confesses that she was looking for a reason to go back to Starfleet. She was hoping to find something nefarious. Meanwhile, Freeman is being questioned by the admirals at Douglas Station. They think Project Swingby was a waste of resources, and they want to decommission the California class and let Admiral Buenamigo's Texas class drones handle second contact missions. Freeman suggests a second contact mission race between the Cerritos and the Texas-class Aledo. Now, the Cerritos loses because Tendi finds microbial life on one of the planets, which necessitates a check for sentience. But that shows that the Aledo failed the mission because it didn't perform the same check. So Freeman tells Buenamigo that she's going to have to notify the admirals. And at the same time, Rutherford notifies Freeman that he wrote the AI for the Texas class before his memory was erased. And it's the same AI that killed Shax. So Buenamigo gives the Alito independent control and orders it to destroy the Cerritos. But it kills Buenamigo instead, and three Texas class ships attack Douglas Station. Now, when Mariner finds out about this situation, she demands that she and Petra do something to help, and Petra reluctantly agrees. Now, the Cerritos lures the ships away from the station to save lives, and they eject the warp core in their path and detonate it. The Alito survives the explosion, at which point Mariner shows up with every other California-class ship and the Armada destroys the Alito, and there is much rejoicing. Anyway, Mariner is happy to be back, and she tells her friends that no one handled the situation worse than her. It was very mature of her to admit that. Rutherford's keeping the implant because it's so cool. 
Talyn, remember her, has been transferred to the Cerritos to train with Tendi. Shax is now Boimler's bridge buddy for speaking in favor of ejecting the Warp Corps. And uh, Shax is living the dream in this episode. And finally, Freeman formally reinstates Mariner to the Cerritos. Freeman apologizes to her for not believing her. But Mariner acknowledges that she didn't make it easy for people to trust her. Again, she's being very mature here. Uh, As it turns out, Ransom is going to be her mentor to his dismay. And that's the season. And thank you very much for that episode summary. And yeah, that wraps up this season of Lower Decks. Now, before we talk about philosophy and themes and morals to the story, here are some of our other thoughts about the episode. And Rodney, I have to say that as soon as they were sitting around the conference table and Admiral Buenamigo was talking about his Texas-class ships, I said to my wife, he set them up, Mm. and which is what he did. Buenamigo, by the way, means good friend, which this guy is not. Definitely not. It took me a little bit longer to see that, Michael, I admit. And notice that Buenamigo, he uses the good of the many to justify his actions to Freeman. So again, that moral principle ends up looking bad. And he is misusing the moral principle. But we'll talk about that kind of thing a little bit later. The namesake of the USS Alito apparently is Alito, Texas. But that's a small community. It's only about 48 or 4,900 people sort of in north central Texas. That kind of makes you wonder why they would pick that community. Well, I've been thinking about that. The other two Texas-class ships are named after big cities, the Dallas and the Corpus Christi. So I was trying to figure out why Alito is the namesake. And here's the best I could come up with. Alito, Texas is the home of a man named David Barton, who is an evangelical Christian activist and founder of an organization called the Wall Builders. This is a group that promotes religion as the historical basis for the U.S. government, which a lot of fact checkers say is not really an accurate portrayal of American history. Hmm. So knowing Hollywood, I kind of wonder if the writers may be making a subtle statement about diversity and inclusiveness and about Starfleet and Star Trek values, given that the AI in the Alito doesn't really get it right and violates these deeply held Starfleet values. I thought it was interesting that the source of Petra's funding is from Picard. Of course, he is an amateur archaeologist who likely would have been a professional if he hadn't chosen a Starfleet career. And note that his endowment is specifically about recovering artifacts from black market thieves. Right. And in this case, taking it to a museum on Quaylar 3. Now, we first visited the Quaylar system way back in Next Generation in the episodes Unification, Unification 1 and 2. Hmm. And the Zakdorn operated a surplus depot. I believe that was on Quaylar 2. Quaylar 2 is also where Dr. Ta'ana, remember last season, sent Tendi to retrieve her box from storage. Right. I thought that name sounded familiar. In this case, the museum was Quaylar 3. So there are at least three planets in that system. The whole archaeology subplot, I thought, drew a lot on Indiana Jones. The Klingon idol head that Mariner recovers is a lot like the one in the opening scenes of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm. Mariner jumps over a gap in the tunnel like Indy did. Mm -hmm. Mariner was supposed to sneak out the artifact without being noticed but it didn't work that way like it didn't work that way for Indy. 
And the reference to the idol going to a museum is also reminiscent of Indy in a different movie saying it should be in a museum. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to me that since Raiders came out, there's been a bit of a course change when it comes to artifacts and museums. More and more we hear about artifacts that were removed from their place of origin decades or even a century ago during the colonial era being returned to their homeland by the museums that have housed them for decades. The same is true, of course, for human remains. Right. So Indy recovering artifacts overseas for the museum at his Marshall College in Connecticut, where he taught, eh, maybe that's not what we preferred mm. today. It would be interesting to know Picard's guidance to the archaeology teams he's funding and whether that Klingon idol had anything to do with the Quelar system. I have to say that there are some Star Trek continuity issues in this episode related to technology. My uh -oh. wife noted right away the continuity problem that you cannot fire phasers in warp. Oh, That's been a fundamental rule of Star Trek physics for a long time, and I don't think it can be explained away by just all oh, the Texas class has new capabilities. Mm, okay. Speaking of weapons in warp, I was interested to see merved photon torpedoes fired by the Texas-class ships. That's multiple vehicles. The one torpedo divided into multiple warheads before yeah. impact. And we see the way in which the Alita received authorization for independent control, but not how the Dallas and the Corpus Christi did. So I assume that the M5 badgy AI in the Alita must have hacked them and activated them. Right, took control from Buen Amigo. And you mentioned the M5. Well, that's from the original series, season two episode, The Ultimate Computer, as you well know. And some yeah. of our listeners, but maybe not all, and the Texas-class AI in Buen Amigo's office, it looks just like the M5 in that original series episode. Yeah, the, the horizontal and the vertical colored lines uh, in the display. Yeah, that was, I think that's definitely intended to be uh, Absolutely. M5. Yeah. Yeah. When I saw that, I, I said, I've seen this somewhere before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So another problem while fleeing the Texas class ships, Cerritos is going warp eight. And warp eight is actually, in some ways, not that fast. It is, it, mm. it's, it's pretty fast, of course, but. We've seen starships capable of warp 9.9 .9 and higher, at least in short bursts. But the Cali-class ships aren't the top of the Starfleet line, we have to admit. So Cerrito ejects the warp core, and the Cerrito kind of spins out to the side, and people on the Cerritos are thrown all over the place. All the way back in Encounter at Farpoint, do you remember that they separated the saucer at warp? How can right, I forget? Right, right before the encounter with, with Q. And the saucer just kind of gently slowed down, dropped out of warp without taking a beating and made its way on impulse. But that's not what happened to the Cerritos. They went through all kinds of stuff. The only way I can rationalize that is that Cerritos intentionally wrenched its way sideways, making for a faster and more chaotic dropout from warp so they could get out of the way of the uh, of the explosion they knew was coming. I, I do want to note, I know some people in Fresno, California, who for many years have considered themselves their fan group to be the USS Fresno, and now they are thrilled that their ship is part of canon. <laughs> yep. So, and I think, Rodney, you and I have a few other quick takes, right? 
Yeah, I got one for you. So Talyn is back. Mm-hmm. Talyn's now Tendi's study buddy. What an odd couple that's going to make. She comes back at the end of the episode. And you might remember her as the Vulcan. Well, I know you remember her as the Vulcan ship Lower Decker we met in season two. And at the end of the episode, that episode, her captain talked about transferring her to a Starfleet vessel. And I hoped at that time that she would end up on the Cerritos. And here she is. I am pumped, Michael. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing more of her in season four. It's going to be great. And all her emotional outbursts. Yes. Yeah. 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 She's totally out of control, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was interested to see that to eject the warp core, it takes two keys turning at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that is very reminiscent of how the nuclear missile launches were supposed to take place, at least during the Cold War. I don't know if it still is or not, but uh, they used two people farther apart than you could reach with two hands, uh, both turning the key to make sure that that human judgment was applied. Yeah, that actually reminds me of that scene at the beginning of War Games. You remember that early 1980s uh movie? Yeah. And actually that scene in War Games was pretty accurate once Years ago, I, I was able to observe, for training purposes, observe a simulated key turn process at an Air Force training facility. And uh, what that training setup was like was very similar to what we saw in war games. But I was just interested they drew on it here, two separate officers having to do the key turns at the same time. And not any two officers could do it. That's why Shax had to run all the way down mm. from, oh, from right. the bridge to do it. Admiral Buenamigo has three pips on his admiral's rank. You know, the three pips with the box around it, Mm -hmm. his admiral's rank. The chair of the hearing, at least, had four. I couldn't tell all the other people on the panel. But, you Mm -hmm. know, Starfleet is a meritocracy, meaning that people who show the most merit are the ones who advance. On the other hand, in Star Trek, people are supposed to be satisfied with where they are and who they are and not be the kind of ones to claw their way up to the top. That's different from just the ambition that some of our characters have to be a captain someday. Oh, definitely. And and, and therefore their ambition to be to be excellent at what they do. Boimler and Tendi and maybe even Mariner will do that by being good officers and therefore showing merit, not by conspiring dirty tricks and things like that to gain advantage. And finally, for this season of the podcast, remember that since The first season of Next Generation, one year as equaled 1,000 stardates. Now, this episode is set on stardate 58499.2, which probably means about June 30th. And that means almost exactly halfway through the year of 2381. And I realized this week that Lower Decks in 2381 is just four years away from the synth attack on Mars. Hmm. and about five years away from the Romulan supernova. And it's not at all impossible that the Lower Deck series will be around for four or five more seasons, maybe more than that. Animated series sometimes go on for a dozen seasons. What? How many seasons has The Simpsons had? They're like season 35 or something. Yeah, they, you know, although I think these Star Trek animated series are a lot more expensive than those, but who knows? Who knows? So I'm wondering... Will Lower Decks at some time in the future have to grapple with these issues of the synth attack, the ban on synthetic life, and the effort by Picard to build 10,000 ships to evacuate Romulus before the supernova? 
or I wonder whether making this season of the Lower Decks series last only a half a year means maybe they're trying to stretch out the time before they would have to address those issues. So maybe next season of Lower Decks will be the second half of 2381. We shall see, you know, but if, if they do end up in that time for continuity purposes, they're going to have to address that. I think that's just necessary given that it's a single universe we're talking about here. But let's go ahead and move on to talk about meaning, I guess. And we're wondering about the messages the writers and the producers might have wanted to convey to the audience here. And uh, why don't you go ahead and take it away here, Michael? Well, this episode is fundamentally about the human factor versus automation and about human error versus machine error. Mm -hmm. Captain Freeman talks about the ability of an AI to navigate complex problems, which he says is not as good as a human. Um, Self-aware, sentient computers have appeared in fiction many times. The first I remember was in Robert A. Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, which was a really, really good novel. But in reality, an AI is still the result of computer code that somebody writes or a team writes. It may be very sophisticated code, of course, capable of learning. And even today, when we're not all that advanced, sometimes the the AI computer code is so sophisticated that it's hard to tell if you're talking to a machine or a real person. That's something known as the Turing test. Yeah. And if I could recommend some science fiction here, uh, the Turing test plays a big role in Alex Garland's 2014 film, Ex Machina. Have you seen that, Michael? No, sorry. Great film, in my opinion. I'm going to use it in my philosophical film class in the spring. Uh, But if you're looking for some non-Star Trek science fiction, you should watch it. Now, this episode, as we know, Michael, but some of our listeners may not know, it draws heavily from the original series episode, The Ultimate Computer. Pretty good episode, I think, which we mentioned earlier. Now, in that episode, an M5 computer designed by Richard Daystrom, yes, that Daystrom, is installed on the Enterprise and tested with a crew of only 20. And now it's hoped that the M5 will eventually eliminate the need for starship crews and save lives. Sounds like Buen Amigo's intention. Initially, it performs so well that a Starfleet Commodore refers to Kirk as Captain Dunsell, which means a part which serves no useful purpose. And of course, uh, Rutherford uses that term here in this episode. Mm -hmm. Kirk is, of course, disturbed by the prospect of losing his job to a computer. And that's exactly how the lower deckers feel in this episode. But eventually the M5 unit kills hundreds of people. And, but this is before Kirk can convince it to deactivate itself because of Kirk, of course, that's what Kirk does. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think that the current episode, the lower decks episode resonates with this theme of artificial intelligence that lacks humanity. Yeah. When Tendi puts the brakes on the second contact mission, she does something that is perfectly in keeping with Starfleet values as the values are embodied in regulations. But of course, it takes enough time that the race is lost because the Texas class AI ship bypasses this mandatory sentience check, probably because it doesn't really understand the value of life. And maybe it 
begrudges that it was created by humans, which is where this daddy issues came from mm-hmm. in the original code that Rutherford wrote. He didn't intend to have that in there, but but it happened. Yeah. Actually, in the original series, there were several episodes in which computers had taken over a world or computers were otherwise doing bad things. The 1960s, you have to, you have to understand the 1960s. That was just at the beginning of the use of computer databases and mail merge communications and computers essentially making decisions without humans being involved in the process because of the way they're programmed. Defeating the evil computer with logic kind of became a Star Trek trope. Mm -hmm. And Freeman even mentions that in passing in this episode where they're trying to figure out what to do. So in addition to M5 in the ultimate computer, we got Landru and the Apple Mm -hmm. and the Changeling. And the Changeling, of course, was officially or unofficially kind of the template for V'ger. And when you add in other original series episodes that featured just some kind of misuse of technology, we could probably list an, another dozen episodes or or more. So Star Trek has always offered a positive view of the future made possible by technology, but at the same time held up serious cautions about the misuse of that same technology. Right, right. Today, as we look around the world, we're all aware at some level that companies are collecting information about us and sometimes not using it ethically or sometimes not ethically protecting it well enough so that other people can steal it. And to be honest, most people are kind of ho-hum about that. But the 1960s was the era of they've given you a number and taken away your name. Remember that, that song lyrics, Secret Agent Man? They've given you a number and taken away your name. There was a lot of angst then about the computerization of record keeping and computer decision making and and a considerable amount of distrust, which played itself out in the various Star Trek episodes. I think that the repeated Star Trek theme of loss of individuality to computer systems is also what led to the creation of the board, which is kind of the mm. ultimate loss of individualism and misuse of technology. Yeah. And then you have things like driverless cars. Who do you charge with a crime if there's an accident and literally nobody is driving? <laughs> and you have automated drone delivery of packages in from the street to your doorstep, untouched by human hands, used to be advertised as a good thing, but now maybe not so much so. I personally think that computer systems, maybe three or 400 years from now in the future, are more likely to be like Zora than M5 and Badgie. But even today, people are writing software to create artificial intelligence systems. And the authors of the software are sometimes surprised by what comes out. Sometimes surprise is a bad thing, too. We There was a story a while back about a chatbot that started spouting conspiracy theories and lies, and it forced the creators to apologize for the inappropriate language and the images issued really? by the chatbot. Yeah. We're still in the infancy of creating true machine intelligence. And uh, I, I note that in psychology, by the way, intelligence simply means ability. Today's AIs often have the ability to do cool, complex things, but they're really far away from actual self-awareness or Skynet type malevolence and things. Oh, thank goodness. (laughs) I don't think that the message in this episode is against artificial intelligence. Yeah, I I think that it is a positive message about the importance of the human element and human ethics in making sure 
that technology is used for good. It's one of the nice things about the Soong androids, except for Lore, of course, mm. that they experience humanity and relate to it well. Yeah, and if I could relate this to the Ultimate Computer again in that episode, Spock had a somewhat nuanced message like this one. He said that computers are more efficient than human beings, but he said, I, I didn't say they were better. <laughs> They're just more efficient. And he said he wouldn't want to serve under a computer. It's not an attack on artificial intelligence, really. Since we're already, this is kind of our rabbit hole of the week. I, I, I read a, an interesting scientific article recently, which said that a true AI will require emotions. Hmm. A true AI will require emotions. It said that emotion is an executive function that allows neural networks, whether they be organic, like we are, or artificial, to process, prioritize, and interpret input signals resulting in output actions. Okay? So the article okay. concluded that emotions are beneficial in an AI but that the emotions have to align with the motivation, what the intentions are to lead the AI to beneficial outcomes. While, and the article said, avoiding the trope in fiction about the AI in which emotions result in misinterpreting situations and negative outcomes. So I don't think that the Alito AI was ignorant of the requirement to do the sentience check. I think it made the value judgment that Starfleet regulations could be ignored in order to win. So the issue here was prioritization, right? Could be. So uh, a, a different topic in terms of theme and, and lesson in this episode, we have the message about Mariner who has mm. bailed out of a really terrible Starfleet assignment that Starbase 80 and is yeah. now working with Petra Aberdeen. But she starts to mistrust Petra's motivation and her funding source and it leads Mariner to conclude that Starfleet is the place for her. And of course, when she learns that Cerritos is endangered, she pulls out all the stops by calling in all the other California-class ships, all of which were apparently close enough to get there in time to help, I note. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what a coincidence. And I just wanted to say, isn't it refreshing sometimes, you know, when you in Star Trek, somebody is suspected of, of having nefarious motives. And as it turns out, they don't have nefarious motives at all. They're they're okay people. I kind of yeah. like that about this episode. You know, in this was not a major plot twist fundamental no. to the episode, but we no. did have this little plot twist about Petra that it seems like she's one thing and all of a sudden is is not a bad guy at all. And, and in fact, I should note Mariner's theory is that because Petra has served on the USS Victory, she's still motivated by Starfleet values. Yeah. And Petra does resist for a little bit, but she gives in to help Mariner pretty quickly. And the fact that she's recovering artifacts from the black market also kind of feels Starfleet-ish. So I would say Mariner and Petra and also Chris Rios are all, they're all, all right. ex-Starfleet at the time we see them, but they're still very much embracing Starfleet values. Yeah. So you can take the officer out of Starfleet, but you can't take the Starfleet out of the officer. We see that often. <laughs> we see that often, unless they're admirals, and then you never know what's going Oh, right. <laughs> so the lessons Mariner learns seem to resonate with Ransom telling her a couple of episodes ago that she's turned the corner on her perceived yeah. uh, misbehavior. And did you note that Mariner just out and out admits that she spent years making sure that her mother didn't trust her? Yep. Yep. 
she's being very grown up in this episode. Yeah. We talked last week about this maybe being a defensive mechanism because Mariner's a lot more vulnerable than she acts. And she tries to distance herself from people who might hurt her emotionally, which is pretty much everybody she knew for a long time until recent times that we're seeing on lower decks. So we end up with Mariner in a, in a pretty nice place, affirming that Starfleet is the place for her, even if she's still not ready to say she wants to be captain someday. She says that Starfleet is an idea and as you and I have sometimes said, Rodney, it, it's an aspiration. It mm -hmm. represents the best we can be, even though we don't maybe always get it quite right. Mariners made the value judgment and an ethical decision about her life now. Would she still steal the Cerritos to clear her mom from criminal charges? Well, that wouldn't surprise me too much. But maybe now she's at the point that she might trust Starfleet and not completely go off on her own as she did mm -hmm. at the beginning of this season. And note, I observed in this episode that when she contacts all the other California-class ships, I don't think she's violating any rules. I mean, she is a civilian. She's not in Starfleet at the time. And I assume that lots of civilians probably send messages to people on Starfleet ships. Sure. And given her parents, Mariner likely knows many of the other captains personally. But after her contact with them, it was their call. It was the Starfleet captain's call individually to drop everything and fly off to save Cerritos and make the point about the California class. Yeah, I imagine civilians are contacting, as you say, Starfleet all the time. And in fact, Starfleet, I think, welcomes that. They want to help. That's sort of their you know, mission in the galaxy is to help people in need, right? And from time to time, we see crew members talking to family back home and things, you know, I assume it's not too hard to get a message to somebody, you know, on a particular starship. Yeah, we had Miglimo contacting his Meemaw last week, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in this episode, we also have the Boimler and Shax dynamic. Oh, right, where right. Shax is really very hurt to the point of crying when he overhears Boimler's impression but later, bold Boimler stands up to the captain to get her to see that Shaq's idea would really work, which endears Boimler to Shaq's. The Boimler of earlier in the series would never have interrupted on the bridge that way. Being bold Boimler doesn't always work out, but he hasn't backed down from it, and he slowly seems to be getting the hang of it, which will make him stand out and maybe merit that promotion he's hoping for mm. when, when the time was right. And as you mentioned earlier, Rodney, the writers invoke the good of the many and also the greater good. Mm. Uh, and as we've talked so many times, Star Trek stories tend to refute that logic, holding that the good of the individual is always important. Now, in this case, it's the good of the safety of the California class crews, yes, but also the good of the microbes that might be sentient and the good done by complying with Starfleet rules mm even if there are so many of them. So we're sort of contrasting the needs of the many and complying with all these rules to protect the many against the long-term Star Trek themes of individuality and self-determination. You know, we often talk in terms of self-determination of species, which is why the prime directive is there. But Mariner has been an over-the-top individual. That's, that's who she is much of the time. And this episode, uh, she learned that the Starfleet way has merit and she's ready to toe the line, at least we can hope. Yeah. But that means giving up a bit of her militant individualism in order to support the needs of the many. 
So sometimes you and I, Rodney, look at this as kind of a black and white, needs of the many or needs of the individual mm-hmm. uh, as being the most important. And in a way, we're finding out here that you have to balance the two. It's yeah. multidimensional and many different factors in it. And it's not just a black and white, absolutely one way or absolutely the other. Yeah. And in the meantime, I guess Mariner, you know, if she needs to express her individuality, she can wear crazy socks or something like that. Or do weird stuff in the polo deck, yeah. Oh, there's that too. Rodney, you know, we like to address the title of Star Trek episodes and their meaning. And right at the beginning, I didn't quite click on the stars at night, but then yeah, I thought neither. about it a little bit and I did. And it is from the lyrics of the song Deep in the Heart of Texas. The stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. Oh, right, right. right? Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> now, you might call the entire fleet of all the California class ships showing up as the stars at night. But I think this is also essentially a Texas themed episode. You have the Texas class ships. Admiral Buenamigo has all the Texas memorabilia on the shelves behind his desk, up to and including a scale model of the Alamo. I saw Uh, that. I have to say that if I were a Texan, I might have some mixed feelings about the portrayal of Texas Mm. in this episode, given that the Texan admiral and the Texas class ships are essentially bad guys. Yeah, it's kind of like a Texas versus California episode, isn't it, Michael? And yeah. California wins. <laughs> there there may be a little bit of that in real life. I've not been a resident of either state, but of the, the 48 contiguous United States, California and Texas are the two largest, mm. Texas largest and California next. There may be some rivalry there. And candidly, the writers and producers are probably more California side than Texas side. So I don't know what play that had here. By the way, the the events of this episode clarify for me they help clarify last week remember last week the admiral sends a reporter to cerritos and it looks to me now that he did that specifically to undermine the california class ship mission Mm. Uh, victoria Nuse, remember yeah Uh, i think she was in on the conspiracy that wouldn't surprise me i said last week she wasn't a very good reporter and i think i think now we can understand that she was doing Amigo's bidding and she was there not to do a fair and balanced report on the cerritos mission but to do a hack job to assist Amigo in his nefarious scheme yeah well um do we have any final thoughts michael I do, and I'm going to pick up right from there. I have to say that I am tired of Starfleet admirals conspiring to do bad things. Mm. It's almost become a Star Trek trope. We got it in The Undiscovered Country and in the second J.J. Abrams movie and some other times. Our ethics should not get worse as we attain higher levels of leadership, particularly with the aspirations of the Star Trek universe and the Star Trek philosophy. You know, this is something that my wife talks about quite a bit in regard to Star Trek. She thinks that, you know, in hundreds of years, human beings will just behave better, right? This kind of bad behavior is going to become more rare. And so it it does seem a little weird that we have this totally corrupt admiral here, you know, behaving so badly, isn't it? I think that was originally Gene Roddenberry's hope for the future. And I think that is the hope of people who 
if you will, endorse the Star Trek philosophy that we will be better in in the future. Mm-hmm. But yeah. uh, from a storytelling point of view, from the point of view of writers having to have an antagonist, they have to have a bad guy. I suppose it's convenient to have someone in power and authority be the one causing problems. So, sure. I, you know, I can understand that. But you know, the line is between how often do you do it and do we do it in a fresh way each time? And I would submit that Star Trek has done it too many times. I, I think I agree with you. I did really think we were going to get a cliffhanger this week, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, we did get one kind of last week, but the non-cliffhanger ending did give nice closure to the season. There are still a few plot threads for the future, certainly, but uh, we got closure on the Rutherford story arc and his implant and the erasure of his memory, and uh, I think all of the character is in pretty good places here at the at the end of the season. So we're not going to have to worry about them like we would if there was a if there was a troublesome cliffhanger. Yeah. And as you know, last week I punted on the question of whether there would be a cliffhanger or not. I really didn't know. <laughs> but, you know, personally, I love this season finale. It was I was entertained. It was action packed. It was so easy to get swept up in that Cali class cheerleading in the climax. And but not only that, it, it explored concerns about A.I., which has been done before in Star Trek, granted, but I appreciated seeing it here. And they also, like you said, tied up these loose ends, set up a possible threat for season four in that post-credit stinger. Yeah. Right. So good job, writers. I, I loved it. And we got to meet some old friends too, some people that had come back from uh, people and ships that had come back from previous episodes. Yeah. So our attention now switches to Star Trek Prodigy. Uh, Mm -hmm. We got the first Prodigy episode this week, but as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we're not going to do a podcast about it initially. Uh, We'll take our first week at Prodigy uh, in two weeks where we'll have actually three episodes to talk about, and that will be our focus going forward. We don't know yet kind of what's going to happen. I'm guessing that Prodigy will have a, I can't say mid-season, but uh, midway through this run of 10 Prodigy episodes, I'm going to guess they're going to take a break around the the holidays. And so we'll get some here in November and then come back in January, and that will bridge the gap to when the next Star Trek Picard episode uh, premieres, which is February 16th of 2023. Right. You know, the United States has Thanksgiving coming up here. Um, so you gotta know, we might get our fifth episode on Thanksgiving. I don't know, but in that first half of the season, we got a mid season break, as I recall. So I wouldn't be surprised if we got one here. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see. It's a matter of how the Paramount executives look at audiences and income. And there are lots of factors that come into play and, since they haven't said anything about it, I think that we're waiting for the shoe to drop and, and we'll find out. But yeah. regardless, like I said, we will be doing Prodigy episodes uh, in batches and uh, we'll see we'll see what comes down the pike from, from Paramount and CBS. We'll be watching as I'm sure our listeners will be. Uh, but for now, we thank you for joining us. Watch for announcements on our Twitter feed at Trek underscore Academy please. And remember that our website is anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. You can listen there or find links to subscribe your podcatching app. 
Again, thank you for being here, and we'll see you in a few weeks to look at the first three episodes of the resumption of Star Trek Prodigy right here on the Star Trek Academy podcast. <laughs>